Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. Today, we're going to be talking about, to be honest, lead with the power of truth, justice, and purpose. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I believe that leadership creates a strategic advantage and is a key lever for creating the world we want to inhabit. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I am delighted that on our show today is Ron Carucci. He's the co-founder and managing partner of Navalent. Ron, can you tell our listeners about yourself? You have a brilliant history and track record of contributing, so I would love for our listeners to hear more about who you are and what you do. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me, Maureen. It's great to be with you. Our firm, Navalent, is about 17 years old now. We're a boutique organization and leadership firm. We focus on the intersection of strategy, organization, and leadership. So where organizations are facing massive transformations in their competitive space or need to transform and overhaul their organizational design to compete better or overhaul their leadership from deep within to how they affect outside them, we're the firm they call. And we spend most of our days traipsing alongside leaders anywhere from Fortune 20 size companies to a lot of mid-caps, and occasionally we'll end up a startup space with the private equity folks to help them navigate and architect the journeys of transformation that allow them to be successful or get out of a ditch that they find themselves in. I've been doing that for 30 years. Began my career inside big corporations and then transferred over to consulting about 25 years ago. When I'm not doing that, I'm busy writing. I am a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review and also have a Forbes column. To be honest, is my ninth book. And... When I'm not doing that, I'm hanging out with my family, riding my bike, playing tennis, hanging out, reading, and going to the movies with my wife. Thank you. So today, we're going to be talking about honesty. And honesty is more than a character trait. It's a muscle that has to be built and stay strong. Honesty can be learned. Truth, justice, and purpose are three sides of the same coin. You need all three. Honesty means you have to say the right thing, do the right thing, and say and do the right thing for the right reason, even when it's hard. Based on a 15-year longitudinal study of more than 3,200 leaders, we can prove under what conditions people will tell the truth, behave fairly, and serve the greater good, and under which conditions they'll lie, cheat, and serve their own interests. So Ron joins the show today to discuss his book, To Be Honest, the book about the leaders and heroes we should all want to emulate. Honest organizations outperform, outcompete, and outattract top talent by substantial multipliers. So, Ron, let's jump into this. Why did you write this topic? Well, I think, Maureen, we don't have to look around too far to see how trust is in a freefall. Leaders and institutions start by being distrusted. And by every trust metric you want to find, it's difficult to gain that trust. It's no longer enough not to lie to be labeled as honest be truthful, be fair, and be purposeful in order to begin to earn that epaulette of honesty. All of us as practitioners of leadership and organizations are tired of the explanations for Theranos stories or Wells Fargo stories or Volkswagen stories. You know, it was a few bad apples or what was the culture? These are just such lame and unsatisfying answers that I wanted to know more. I wanted to know what takes otherwise good-hearted, good people and turns them into cheats. And if we could know that, if we could predict that, could we prevent it? And if we could know what conditions brought them to their better side of themselves, could we proliferate those? And so that's what we set out to do. So we analyzed 15 years of interviews with more than 3,200 leaders across several hundred organizations across the world to see if we could detect those patterns and if we could quantify them, could we actually turn them into predictors that we could measure, but also turn them into levers, practical levers leaders could pull to help shape environments where they get the best of people rather than the worst of people. What was the biggest surprise out of the research for you? One was certainly that this is not about some weird pixie dust or DNA you get as a character trait. This is not some mystical genetic fiber that makes you honesty or not. Honesty is a capability. It's actually something you have to work at to be good at, and you have to work at it every day. You know, if you go to the gym, you're not going to spend your first day there bench pressing 400 pounds. You're going to have to work up to that muscle. Well, you don't bench press hard moments of truth. The first time you, you meet them, you have to go to the honesty gym and work out and build that muscle. And, and if you don't use that muscle, it atrophies. So you have to actually want to excel at this skill and believe that it's worth doing so. The second was some of the factors that we, we found in the predictors of honesty that were four. One of them, the largest one was 
cross-functional relationships, hmm. the place in our organizations where the seams are, where you either have a unified force, you either have cohesion and alignment, or you have border wars, you have silos, you have we, they thinking, you have vilification of somebody in another department that is a pain in your neck. The factor there was that if the seams of your organization are well-stitched and coalesced, if there is a way to resolve those healthy tensions and have one plus one equal three, you are six times more likely to have people behave honestly. But if there's border wars there, if those conflicts are being unresolved, those intractable conflicts that people choose finger pointing over resolution, now you're six times more likely to have people lie, cheat, and serve their own interests first. There's a huge multiplier, right? So we don't necessarily understand the risk we're allowing to fester by allowing those border wars, classic ones, sales and marketing, supply chain and operations, R&D and marketing, HR and everybody. When we allow them to exist, we're now raising the risk of dishonest behavior. And these are people who would otherwise perceive themselves as honest and forthright people. These aren't companies hired liars and cheaters. I don't think anybody would wake up in the morning and say, hey, I'm a nefarious scoundrel. I don't think anybody, even in some of the headline stories we read, intends for those outcomes. I think we're masterful at self-justification. We're masterful at making ourselves right, even in a border war. The problem is that when you fragment the organization, you fragment the truth. So now we have dueling truths. So it's no longer about the truth. It's about my truth versus your truth. And of course, my goal is to be right. So we're masterful at creating the reality around us that we want and then telling ourselves a story about how it's true, even when it's not. I think most dishonesty is not a byproduct of nefarious ill intent. Most dishonesty, I believe, to be the byproduct of self-protection. Got it. We are trying to avoid pain or avoid exposure or fear being found out. Yes, there are a handful of psychopaths out there on the take looking to serve their own selfish interests. But I don't think that's the vast majority of dishonesty. That's a really compelling point is people presumably want to do the right thing and they are acting out of their humanness to avoid issues. Yep. Looking bad or engineering a certain response in front of other people or you're trying to maneuver a certain outcome. And again, the conditions and the research explain why. In the case of cross-functional partnerships, if I'm in a border war, I don't want to lose, right? My natural instinct is to be tribal. And I've now defined the tribe as not a, the whole company, but the tribe of my department, my division, my region. Mm -hmm. I have to protect the tribe. You've now become the enemy. So it's about my loyalty to my tribe has now become weaponized. Do I mean that? No. Do I understand that there are probably far greater consequences to the broader organization for my behavior? No. But that is the outcome. That's one of the things I work with senior teams on that's been interesting is defining us not as my functional area, but us as a company or a corporation, it is my objective to make the best decisions for the organization, not Maureen versus Ron or whomever. Yeah. We, listen, we all have somebody we vilified, somebody we have concocted and mass, and, and we tell ourselves stories. Whenever I ask leaders, who is your they? Who is the person you have decided is your enemy? You have vilified them. You've collected various amounts of data and formed them into a conclusion about who you believe them to be. And now that's who they are. Whether you really have substantiating data for it or not, that's how you concocted them. And so that's how you treat them. And the other question you have to ask yourself is who's they are you? Interesting. On whose list do you find yourself being the pain in their neck? Who's concocted you into somebody you're not? And what would happen if you made your they part of your we? How bad is it to expose yourself to people who think differently than you, who don't see the world as you do, who don't, who aren't measured on the same metrics as you are, who don't perform the same function as you? We are so prone to affinity groups of people who look, think, and sound like us. We see that in society, and we certainly see that in our workplaces. So what would it take for you to walk across a border, walk across some part of your organization into a land you weren't welcome in, into a place of people not like you, and see the world from their point of view? And I think people are so worried about listening and understanding, you know, the fear of what happens if I don't shun them, they think I condone their, what they're doing. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means that you're open-minded to hear what they have to say, to see how they think, to see why you're a pain in their neck. And whenever I do what we call seam startups in organizations to help bring those seams together, you inevitably hear a litany of, I had no idea you did that. That's why you measure that? That's why you're so mad at me all the time. That's why it's late? You know, you hear all these conclusions or, or eureka moments of a vast array of information that fills in all the blanks that you fill in with made up information. 
And now you're not a villain anymore. Now you're just Marine. So it sounds like there is a combination then of a facilitated process and an individual practice I would need to do. There are systemic factors. So certainly you have to look at the systemic issues around, are there competing metrics that are causing a rivalry, right? So we always want to look at the personality aspects of these, in this case, the border wars. But the reality is that sometimes they're designed to fight. Mm -hmm. If you have one group measured on quality, one group measured on speed, sales being measured on next quarter's results, marketing being measured on vague brand metrics, in one digital marketing global powerhouse I work with, you had one group being measured on driving traffic, one group being measured on conversion. Two different data sets in customer analytics that had to work together, but they wouldn't share the data because they didn't want to be outmaneuvered. If there are systemic factors, processes that don't sync up, governance mechanisms that don't align, resource allocation processes that compete. If there are systemic factors, you have to look at those as well. And then yes, you have to take it down to your own individual practices. How do you treat people who are not like you? How do you treat people who you believe you have reason to vilify? How do you suspend that disbelief and rethink the conclusions that you've drawn? Are you seeing an acceleration of challenge given the political polarization and some of the things happening in our communities right now? Absolutely. I think there's a, that's all coming into the workplace. I think we're definitely seeing the politicization of work, people walking on eggshells, people not wanting to have hard conversations and people are afraid of it. And because organizations aren't getting good at creating the environments in which transparency and open dialogue can happen, people are taking to the streets, they're taking to social media, right? And we have confused the world by telling them that speaking your truth is the same as speaking the truth. Yeah. And they can no longer make a distinction. So they think that if I adopt the posture of a big middle finger and go rant, that somehow I've now found my voice. You know, there's a lot of controversy about whether or not employee activism is a form of employee voice. I actually believe if you look at all the, you know, the academics have been studying employee voice for decades. I actually believe employee activism is a symptom of the absence of employee voice, because if, it, if that's what they have taken to, to get to be heard, it means 20 other steps got skipped or weren't available to them. Companies are all thrilled to have their employees be activists for other causes, but the minute that activism turns on them, they shut it down, right? Google, Facebook, there's plenty of companies who were all for causes, but when you became the cause, they didn't want that. And, and the research would suggest that there's employee activism as a form of influencing change rarely yields much. Oh, that's interesting because people clearly become activists because they want to make an impact. Right. Look at Wayfair, look at endless stories in the last four or five years where it did not amount to much reasonable change. That's just not a way organizations are prepared to hear concerns. Now, the question the organization has to ask itself is, why did it take this? Why were there no other forums or channels for these people to have their voice heard or to share their concerns? Why did they take to the streets? Or now, look at Facebook's, the leaked memo about leaking, right? Facebook saying, please don't leak this, right? So leaking has become the new whistleblowing. Why does it take that? Have we trained a generation of people to think that, that your opinion on that is right? Have we over-conditioned people to think that every opinion you have has to be heard and acted upon? Or have we not trained people enough to realize you have a civil right to be civilly heard? It doesn't mean you have to be agreed with. And it is upping the ante on organizations to have to, when they put in place policies, to have to justify them, to make them reasonable. And the big one these days is mandated vaccinations, the flexibility working from home policies as we open offices, right? If those feel capricious, whimsical, or somebody's random preference, employees aren't going to hear it. In the, some current research I'm doing right now on retention on this resignation mass exiting thing, what I'm finding is people can hear a policy that disappoints them if you can clearly say why the business benefits from it, that this is the reason we have to do it this way. If you can't make it clear that the rationale behind we need you in the office three days, whatever it is, is in the service of our business, people automatically assume this is a random choice. And you certainly can't make the productivity case anymore. For 18 months, we proved that wasn't the issue. So when you do the whole, we're a better team when we're together thing, or we just need to have people in the offices, it's better for us. People aren't going to buy it. Well, and they have choices. And for the first time, they're actually acting on that agency. They're acting on those choices. Mm -hmm. And it's scaring employers because, you know, in some cases for the companies that are experiencing mass resignations, it's their best talent that's quitting and leaving. Their worst talent is quitting and staying. You know, the other thing that strikes me as I listen to you is this belief that authenticity is a positive quality. And in some cases it is. But if I am authentically, absolutely outraged about something, 
you use the word civil. Yeah. I can be authentically pissed off. I still have to be civil when interacting with people. I don't know that outrage is a form of authenticity. Right. I actually think that's a distorted version of yourself, right? I think outrage is sort of a, a symptom of something else, something grievous, something painful, some moment of transference that you've been triggered by. Authenticity shouldn't hurt other people. The minute your authenticity is weaponized, it's no longer authentic. Mm, interesting. It's how I really feel, but how you really feel shouldn't be at the expense of someone else's dignity. And it seems like the vaccine issue is leading into some fairly non-civil response. What I coach my clients on is do not moralize the vaccine issue. If your company has made the decision as a matter of policy that all employees have to be vaccinated, it's a business decision. The minute you moralize it, the minute you make it an issue of ethics, you weaponize it. And the people who don't want the vaccine will entrench further. Be prepared that if people don't want to be vaccinated, they may leave. And that's the business decision you have made. And it better be based on in sound business rationale for your business, for the customers you serve, for the products you make, for the environments you create. That's your choice. Some organizations are finding ways to say, okay, if you don't choose to be vaccinated, you have to get a COVID test every week and come proving that you're having a negative test. It's an alternative, right? So they're trying to create maneuvering room in the service of keeping people healthy and safe. Some companies don't, may not have that luxury because of the customers they serve or the markets in which they work. But you cannot make this a moral or ethical issue because at that point, then you are forcing a polarization that isn't helpful. We're still seeing protests as nurses. Yeah. If you're interacting with patients who are ill, which is why they're in your hospital, one could make a business decision. I'm not getting into moral and ethical conversations here either. Yeah. But one could make that business decision. It's a complicated issue for sure. That I think is where the honesty comes back is it is easy to get twisted up if I haven't built the muscle, just like I'm not going to go bench press 400 pounds if I haven't been to the gym. This is, sounds like one of those areas where I need to have done a little bit of working out before I lift this one. Yeah, very true. Very true. So you mentioned the four conditions your research uncovered. Can you give those to us again? One, they're cross-functional relationships. The other three were clarity and identity, meaning be who you say you are. We all have missions and purposes and values. We have statements we make that are promises about our organizations to those we serve, to those we employ. When the actions and words of those promises match, you are three times more likely to have people be honest. Honest as defined as truth, justice, and purpose, not just not lying. But when those actions and words don't match, when you have now institutionalized duplicity, you have said to people, yeah, around here we say one thing, but we do another. You've now told people it's okay to do that. And now you're three times more likely to have people be dishonest. The second was dignity and fairness and accountability. So when I feel like my contributions are discussed in a dignified and just way, meaning my chance of being successful is the same as anybody else's here, that my contributions are evaluated and talked about in fair and dignified ways, you're four times more likely to have people be honest. But when I feel like the playing field's unlevel, when there are capricious metrics used against me, when I feel like there are privileged roles here or privileged places that I'm not part of that disadvantage me, when I feel like I have been a cog in a wheel or put in a category or I'm made to be invisible in my contributions, now you're four times more likely to have people be dishonest because now I have to embellish my accomplishments or hide my mistakes as a way to keep up. The challenge with that one is that our work has so dramatically changed in the last 30 years. You know, many of our systems were built for an era when people were doing repeatable work, right? When it was how many claims you processed today, how many, you know, cases you closed, how many t-shirts you printed. And today, my remit is no longer repeatable, predictable work. My remit is as unique as I am. It's my analysis, my ideas, my creativity, my breakthrough solution, my perspective. And so... Our systems in the past separated the contribution from the contributor as a way to make it fair, right? Sameness equaled fairness. Today, sameness is the very thing that makes it unfair because I'm no longer the same as anybody else. And I don't want to be compared to them either. I want my work treated as an extension of me. The contribution today is much more a reflection of the contributor than ever. That's what makes it requiring of dignity and justice. And lastly, transparency. So we touched on this a little bit before. So governance and how decisions are made. If I walk into a room where there's a meeting happening and I believe that the data that's being presented is talked about is not spun, it's genuinely thoughtful, it represents multiple perspectives. If the person presenting that data doesn't, I don't believe to have another agenda other than to get to a solution or a problem or a decision that we've all been gathered to help contribute to. 
And if I believe my voice is welcome, I believe that an alternative point of view, a dissenting perspective, a contradiction to the, what the prevailing view in the room is, is welcomed. Now you're three and a half times more likely to have people be honest. But if I walk into that room and it's an orchestrated theater, it's nothing but performance art. The data has been spun. The person has a clear agenda. The decision probably got made yesterday. Now we're just trying to make it look like we're aligned. And the last thing I think you want is to hear a different point of view than the one that's prevailing. Now you're three and a half times more likely to have people lie because I have to get the truth underground. I'm going to have to hide who I am. And the collective of all four of those, the collective interesting thing statistically was that they're cumulative. So if you are good and effective in all four of those areas, you are 16 times more likely to have people be honest. But if you're not, if you suck at all four of those, you are 16 times more likely to have to be in one of those headline stories you never wanted to be in. So I want to just let that sink in for a second. So the cumulative impact of these four, and I can read them in your book and I can create structures, things like the last one you talked about transparency, it may not be innate because again, there are underlying questions. I'm often with clients who say, but if we share this, then our competitors will copy it or those kinds of responses. So there is a level of transparency that's potentially appropriate. And I think many people go so far in the overcorrection of a lack of transparency to hide behind those reasons when you absolutely, absolutely think competitive trade secrets or impending policy decisions that aren't ready to be shared. Discretion is still required as management. But too often, we, under the guise of protecting people or protecting something, mm -hmm. usually ourselves, we withhold information that could and should be shared. One of my clients, this is a story in the book, his company was facing some pretty harsh headwinds. And it was a market downturn, didn't see it coming in his particular sector. And he was anxious and there was going to be, have to be some fairly severe cost cutting. And he didn't know where he was going to be able to meet his, his remit without a lot of blood loss. I said, well, how is your team taking the news? He said, well, they don't know how bad it is because if they did, they would bail. I said, well, how do you know that? He said, well, I, it's a risk. Why would I want to haunt them with information they can't do anything about? I said, that's a misassumption. Why do you assume they can't help? I said, one of your values as a company actually is transparency. Don't you need to tell them? He said, well, transparency doesn't mean telling them everything, does it? I said, in this case, I think it does. I think they are most equipped to help you meet that remit for cost cutting than you ever are. And they'll probably be harder on themselves than you will be. But if you don't engage them now, and they find out how long you withheld the information, you're really going to have a bigger problem on your hand. You need to engage them. And so he did. And of course, to his amazement, they came up with far greater, more severe cost-cutting solutions, uh, solutions he would have never known to look for. So I think we have to really interrogate our own rationale for why we're not being transparent to make sure that it's not our own discomfort we're trying to soothe versus hiding behind some justification of this is for the good of some greater order that we're not sharing this information when actually you probably should. And first of all, if it's going to come out anyway, you know, better you, they hear it from you than on social media or somewhere else. And the last thing you want is your employees reading something in the paper. You should have told them. Yeah. Talk about great resignation. Those are the, the reasons people exit. Yeah. Clearly, I'm the, if I'm the last priority because I'm the last to know here, why would I stay? So I hear a lot about the human side of self-protection and being clear about the assumptions I'm making about myself and others which seems to all track back to self-awareness. Absolutely. What I tell readers is, as leaders, you can't be true to yourself until you're true about yourself. Most of us don't have the requisite degree of self-knowledge we think we do. Usually measure that by as our intentions. And so we impose our intentions on our impact and assume people are seeing no gap. And yet I ask leaders all the time, just on that first one, be who you say you are. It's true to you as well. You have espoused a set of values, whether you've articulated them or not. People can decode what they believe is important to you. And they are making choices on how to interact with you based on those conclusions. If they've misconcluded what's important to you and you don't know what they've concluded, they're going to be manipulating you, working around you, withholding information from you because they believe certain things to be important to you that may not be. So it behooves you to tell people, this is how I make my choices. This is what I value. But if people see a contradiction between your actions and your words, they won't trust you. I had to give feedback to a client not too long ago that his team had lost trust in him. And he was irate and he was defensive. I said, he said, I've never lied to them. I've, I've, I always include them in decisions. They know where I stand on things. How could they see me as distrustful? I said, well, apparently in meetings, you get a little impatient when people are going on and on and on and you don't like it. So you get to use sarcasm with people when you're dissatisfied or you cut people off. 
And he said, well, everybody has a bad day. I said, well, you apparently have more than your fair share of them when you behave like that. And what you've told people is you're not safe. You've told people unless you get your point of view made in a certain amount of time or you, you know, don't say something that sounds intelligent to me. I'm going to I'm going to demean you in public and I'm going to cut you off. I don't care what your intention was, if you thought it was benign or meaningless to them, it creates an environment where they feel like I have to be careful what I say and I'm not sure I want to say anything. And that's a reason to withdraw trust from you. Did he ever connect those dots? Not in a million years. You know, so how many of us are walking around choosing actions that we think are benign and inconsequential that are actually having a deleterious effect on relationships? We don't even see it. If you don't have a way to calibrate that, if you don't have a way to get that feedback, you, you need to get in on the conversation. I tell leaders is a very simple litmus test. If you don't have somebody coming into your office once or twice a week saying something that makes you uncomfortable, be very confident your leadership sucks. I was thinking, how do you measure? And that's very simple. Because here's why. Every night around dinner tables of people you lead, stories about you are being told. Every night. If you don't know what stories they're telling, if you're not being intentional about shaping the stories they tell, you're leaving it to chance. And if you don't know what stories they're telling, you know, and if you've concluded that the reason they're not bringing you hard things to hear is because everything's fine, now you're stupid. <laughs> Especially right now, there's too much going on. Why would you keep your head buried in the sand? It's comfortable. It's very self-soothing to assume all is well. But they're telling somebody, mm -hmm. if you haven't made it safe enough for it to be you, you should ask yourself why. Well, and even worse when they're telling their friends on social media. Yeah. Last door. Yeah. It may not be fair, but you know, when Uber introduced rating of the passenger by the driver, it's a ratingful world. Not all ratings are created equal. Just because someone puts a nasty tweet out there about you doesn't make it true. But we live in a rating hyper world and we confuse ratings with feedback, which it's not. But your best offense against all that other stuff is to create a direct pathway to your door and make it a safe place for dangerous truths to be told so that you don't have to worry about it winding up in some other place and being concocted and distorted in ways that you didn't intend. And it's hard to bring it back. Maureen, you can't. Once it's out, mm -hmm. walking it back is, I mean, it may dissipate to the next news cycle and it may die down, but the wound is there. And it hurts to have somebody misattribute something to you that's so far from who you are. But if you didn't give people a chance to, to know who you were, they're going to make it up. And the higher up you are in an organization, the more your life is concocted. You, you live on the jumbotron. You walk around 24-7 with a bullhorn strapped to your mouth. Everything you say and do is amplified. You cannot control all the versions of you that are out there, but you can certainly minimize their distortions. Yeah, I'm just thinking of some of our political figures and gaffes. And if I put myself under that kind of schedule, there's no way I, I make mistakes just reading your bio. Yeah. Who knows what I would say on a jumbotron if I was also flying around the world and keeping that kind of schedule. Yep at decades older than I am. Right. I think we have expectations that are also, we lack grace when somebody does something silly. Oh my gosh. And you know what? As a leader, if you want grace shown to you, you better be showing it to them first. Yeah. Yeah. We have lost our, our ability to show grace in a world that has become so intolerant and so judgmental and hyper and weaponizes flaws in a minute, which is, creates cruel. I mean, it really is cruel. You can't change that reality of the times we live in, but you can certainly make sure you're not giving people reasons. You know you're imperfect. People fear you don't know it, right? So before they have to find out how you're imperfect, just announce it. Saying, hey, I stutter sometimes. Or, hey, I get tired sometimes. Or, hey, I need you to remind me. Mm -hmm. I'm flawed. So please show me some grace. I will show you the same when you make mistakes. How do you do that? And I'm curious because occasionally I'll get the feedback when I do something like that, that I'm minimizing my credibility by saying I'm human, but in fact, I am human and I am going to do something that's forgetful. You know, Maureen, I wish if I could have leaders learn one thing, I wish they would appreciate that their vulnerability and their humanity is one of their greatest sources of credibility. They are not credibility killers. Hiding them is a credibility killer because people are observing them every day. And the only conclusion they can then draw is that you, you're not aware of them. Oh, I'm painfully aware of mine. And if they're significant and you keep saying, I'm working on them when you're not, that's also a problem. But if they're just part and parcel of our humanity, asking forgiveness and grace is an incredible source of credibility. People want to know that it's safe for them to be human themselves. And if you're setting the example of hiding that humanity, they feel like they have to hide theirs. 
By showing yours, you invite them to bring theirs. And that's the safest place to get their best work. Because when I bring all of me, my flaws included, to work, it's the best version of me, which gives me the chance to bring my best ideas and best thinking. Yes, with that, you get my, my skin knees too. But I'd rather have that than part of my best self and hiding your worst self. Well, and then no cover-ups required. If I know I'm working with you and I can say, hey, I blew it. I blew it. And now we can get on with fixing it, Yeah, right? It's a great word, cover-up, Maureen. Think about the amount of sophisticated creativity energy that has to go into doing that and then sustaining it and remembering what lies you told who. All that capacity could get challenged into something productive, but it's now being diverted into this mass illusion, this mass sleight of hand maneuver. And it's exhausting. Don't give people the reason to, to need to do that. It sounds so simple, and yet... There's so much on the line if I'm genuine and I get exited. It's hard. And you have to be ready for sometimes in, in toxic environments, your values will cost you. But you know what? The reason I wrote this book of heroes is I didn't want to tell, tell how it all goes wrong. I wanted to talk about people who are living these things. I wanted to talk about the organizations and the leaders who are displaying them in their full humanity and imperfection, how they're embodying these principles, both individually and collectively so that we could follow them, so that we could be inspired by them. It was an incredible thrill to curate the stories of such extraordinary human beings from all over the world. And there are people who give us a blueprint. They give us a roadmap, how to live for and defend our values. And sometimes you have to wake up and recognize you're in an environment that is not conducive to you living by those values and you shouldn't be in it. There's a lot of neuroscience in the book. I wanted to understand how our brains are wired. And we can learn some really fascinating things about our brains. One of them is we're naturally wired for honesty. Our brains thrive at their best when we're being honest. The problem is when we're put into environments that are less than honest, eventually we will succumb because our need to belong and our need to conform is stronger. Thus the, the metaphor of a slippery slope. And as Dan Ariel says, we don't have slippery ascents. And unfortunately, like our cell phones do, our brains don't come wired with a button that says restore factory settings. So you know you have to get out of that environment to restore your natural proclivity to the honesty you want to bring to the world and redeem the story. I tell a story early in the book of a job, one of my very first jobs, I had to quit because I was out delivering these programs to people. And eventually I realized I was lying to people. I wanted to believe what I was saying was true. I wanted to believe the transformation I was supporting for the CEO of a large energy company was real. But in my gut, I knew that it was flawed and there was not, there was deceit involved. Even if it was well-intended deceit, I couldn't stay. I had to make a hard choice to move on because if I stayed, I know I'd keep doing it. There was a place earlier in my career where I had a boss ask me to tell our team something that was patently untrue. I did. We had a mass exodus and it's one of my worst moments that to belong, to keep my job, I told an untruth that led to people suffering. Mm. It's so painful. And it shaped partially my decision to run my own company, that I don't want to be in an environment that my ability to thrive and yeah. not get rich, pay the bills, right? That this was about, especially early career where you're paying off student loans and buying a car and stuff. And folks are making those decisions every single day, balancing career choices and honesty, which I think is back to... We don't often talk about the environment that provokes dishonesty and links your economic survival with inappropriate behavior. Yep. Well, and the reality is that how many more case studies do we need to show that it's a false correlation? It may work for a season, but it's not sustainable. And in, th in this environment, you're going to get caught. Tell yourself this won't get exposed is just a fool's errand today. But there's even better reasons not to try one of the things that was so exciting in the research to find Maureen was that on every metric you would care about, financial, personal, honesty outperforms its counterpart every single time. Organizations, you know, look at the ESG portfolios and the purpose-driven portfolio, mm -hmm. market share, brand loyalty, profit margins, earnings per share for stock prices, employee retention, brand loyalty. On every metric, they outperform them. On individuals, right, their career, their sense of satisfaction, their sense of, of peace of mind their sense of achievement, all far more satisfied, and their economic ambitions. How many people who have all the wealth in the world and they're miserable, Yeah, right? It's almost cliche, isn't it, these days? 
And so we don't need more data or more research to prove that honesty pays. Can you give us an example of one of your heroes and the blueprint? Oh my gosh, sure. There's so many. Let's talk about one of my favorites. He's also a friend of mine, uh, Aubert Jolie. He was the CEO of Best Buy and his book now, The Heart of Business is out there. But he took over that company. It was on the brink of bankruptcy and everybody told him he was crazy for taking the job. And, you know, on the brink of, of disaster, consumer electronics is a, is a low margin, competitive cutthroat business. Mm-hmm. The online retailers like Amazon were eating the lunch of the big box stores. Circuit City was already gone. Everybody's advice, and he was a McKinsey, ex-McKinsey guy, right? So, of course, all the playbook says, cut costs, close doors. He did the opposite. He went and listened to people. He went and listened and watched customers in, interact. He, he'd watch customers come in, spend half an hour, and then walk out empty-handed. He'd listen to store managers and the laments of having 50 KPIs to you know, have to be accountable for. How everybody was coming in and saying they could get the thing cheaper online. They had no price-matching mm. policy. They weren't empowered to do that. People come in with very difficult questions. Technology is a complicated thing and nobody could answer their questions. And so he transformed that culture to one of purpose where he said, we're going to first be human. Don't treat the person on the floor as if they're somebody you're going to sell a TV to. Treat them as if they're your grandmother. Mm -hmm. They're your best friend and who has a problem and you want to help them. He changed all, you know, cut the KPIs down to three, instantly gave everybody price matching, you know, empowerment authority right at the cash register. And began this listening to people's stories, listening to people and believing that their purpose had to feel part of the bigger purpose, which they eventually defined as enriching the world through technology and turned everybody in that company on the store floors into ambassadors of help, into ambassadors of being human and really caring about people's technological needs and making sure they left feeling helped. Listening to the heartbreaking stories of employees who felt invisible. Who, these were college students and people who had aspirations and had dreams of doing more things. And he wanted to know what they all were. And so really, really turned around how they measured contribution and performance, how they engaged employees, how they unleashed purpose into the world in a very tangible and profound way. When he left after, I think he was at 10 years, you know, the, the stock had gone from $11 to over $100 a share. Retention had dramatically risen in retail. If you're 50%, you're lucky. And it was much lower than that when he left. So, but his beautiful purpose was, you know, treat profit as an outcome, not a goal. And he put some really stark principles in place of how he wanted that company to run and how he wanted people to experience them when they walked into those stores. And of course, it's one of the corporate America's most beautiful turnaround stories and the way he led it and how he imprinted himself onto the organization was just a stunning example of leadership that we can, we can all emulate and follow. Do you, in the book, have a blueprint for how to get there? Every chapter. I want, Maureen, I wanted nobody to be able to read this book and go, what do I do now? So every chapter has a closed section called Get Busy. And it is a sort of a treasure trove of here are all the things you could choose to do right now. Each of the four sections of the book is broken into two chapters each, one on the organizational implications of honesty and one on the individual implications of honesty. So even if you don't lead a big department or group, there are still things you can personally do. Every single chapter, I I left no stone unturned to make sure people could have a blueprint, could have, okay, what do I do now? What's something I can do right away to act upon this? Because the, the great news about the statistical models were that it wasn't all or nothing. It wasn't either, you know, you're six times more likely to have liars or, or angels. What we found was that if you statistically modeled out, what would a 30% improvement in transparency bring me? Or what would a 20% improvement in alignment between actions and words bring me? You get a, a bump in honesty. You know, so I think a, a 35% improvement in justice and accountability got you a 15% improvement in honesty, right? So these are levers. You can move the needle down the field. It doesn't have to be an all or nothing sweeping transformation. And indeed it couldn't be, but if you just try, just set out and pick some of the areas where you can, there's low hanging fruit for you. Simply, here's an easy one. Walk into your team tomorrow, take the values or your mission or your promise, whatever your statement of prevalent promise is off the wall, put it on the table and say, Hey, if somebody followed us around with a video camera all day long and showed it, could they use it as a training program for these values? What would they see? Mm-hmm. Where could we do better? What's one place where we shine in embodying this promise? What's one place I shine? What's some place I could do better? What's some place where you wonder if I, I'm living this? Tell me. And let's pick one thing together and get better at it. Really simple thing. Get it off the wall, off the lobby wall, off the screensaver, all the t-shirts, and put it into the room and activate it. Over the duration of my career, I had one boss who did something like that, where she would bring it in and randomly call on people in meetings, which we did not love. But we had to talk about how do we, 
how are we living this? And one of the things I remember standing out, we had a client that wore different color sweaters. So we used to call him Mr. Rogers. He was a, a lovely, lovely man and a very good client. And she said, you got to stop because it's disrespectful. And we didn't mean disrespect, but it was a clear description of him. Just that living every day in the most minute details. Yep. We don't say we care about our clients and do good work and make fun of them when they leave the room. Right. She was pretty militant about this is how we are. And good for her. Yeah. Good for her. Because here's the thing. We all see the fissure. We all see the disconnect. And if that disconnect is okay, it makes others okay. And so if it's okay to want to value our clients and treat them well and then make fun of them when they're not there, it's okay to make fun of each other. Collusion that is now okay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, by her insistence that we align our values and actions, she now has people going, I'm not going to talk behind people's backs. And even if it's because I don't want to get in trouble, that's fine. I mean, be nice if it was because you don't want to hurt people, but... Good for her for having the courage and the, and the dignity to want to make those words have meaning. Because how many companies have you seen, Maureen, where you say the, the values of the mission, people go, oh, yeah, that. Like, there's an eye roll, right? People don't even know what they are. It's for cosmetic consumption only. They're not really anything we actually care about. Or they take the wallet card out when you ask them. Take the wallet card out. Yeah, exactly right. Occasionally, you might find them mentioned in a performance appraisal on a list where you check off boxes. But there's no real teeth to them. And turns out that's hiding in plain sight, like all four of these are. Hiding in plain sight, that's a risk. Because when all they are is for cosmetic consumption, people assume that it's okay to not mean what you say. And that gets back again to what you say about eating away at honesty and then on all of the other factors. Yep. Yep. They're very interlinked. So then you talk a little bit about justice. Can you tell our listeners why justice matters? It's in the title of your book. Yep. This was important to me. I spent a lot of time dealing in my personal life working on issues of inequity. Mm-hmm. Procedural justice, procedural fairness has been a topic of the academics research for you know, 50, 60 years. And it turns out, it, one, it's a predictor, right? The minute someone says it's not fair, the stage is set for them because now they feel entitled to take, right? So it is an absolutely known precursor to misconduct. But more than that, today, inequity is the moral issue of the day. It is the ethical drama. The problem is our friends in the DEI community are trying to campaign their way to justice rather than design it into the systems, right? If I walk around your organization and I ask people, so who's privileged around here? If I'm in a tech company, they're going to point to the engineers. If I'm in a high growth company, they're going to point to the salespeople. If I'm in a brand company, they're going to point to the marketers. And if I say, okay, not all work is created equal, so it's fine that in this company, that work is more important than the accountants. But do those privileges disadvantage you? Now it's a different answer. Right now, if my chance of success is marginalized or I feel invisible because of their privilege, it's no longer just the inequity of work. Now it's the inequity of opportunity and treatment. One of the things we learned about the brain is that our amygdala is threatened by categorical thinking. The minute we feel labeled, we feel unsafe. I was working with a client who he was a rising star on his way to be a successor to a major job. I was his coach. I intentionally scheduled one of our coaching sessions to follow his performance review because I wanted to debrief with him. The video camera came on, we were remote, and I could see the veins in his neck like bulging. And he was irate. He's like, she gave me a three. I'm always a four. In my last company, I was a five. I'm always the top rating. But now HR says there's a quota. So only some people can get four. So I got the three. Who the hell got the four? I'm like, Maureen, he was out of control and sense. I'm like, what? So I'm letting him vent. I'm trying to walk him back from the ledge. And I asked him to send me the document so I could read what she said. And I'm reading through her comments and it was all just fine. Like it was very complimentary in the areas he was very strong in. The development areas were still the same ones we've been working on and and she's showing progress, but still needs work. He was still on track as a successor. Nothing had changed, but the number triggered his sense of threat and invisibility. If your company is using categorical thinking as a way to box employees in nine boxes or potential boxes, whatever, just know you're adding no value to the process and you're probably making people feel unsafe and unwhole. So how do you help people understand that they actually do need to improve? Because we are surrounded by people who are good at their level, but to get to the next level, they need to up the game. So not poor performers, middle of the line, or even good performers who want to move up. How do I give them feedback? Well, I think the reality is that, first of all, I think if, if feedback is not, you know, the exchange of information and conversation about how we're doing, it's not a normal part of your culture, then it feels awkward, right? If it's an annual event, it's not feedback anymore. Now it's, it's perfunctory. 
And so you have to create a norm. I know many companies sort of, there was a season where we were doing like performance appraisals in exchange for monthly check-ins and whatever. And, you know, frequency can improve if quality improves. If frequency improves and quality doesn't improve, then it's just more torture. You're just spreading it out over a year instead of saving it up for once a year. Mm -hmm. But if you make it normal that we talk about how we're doing, and it's a mutual exchange. We talk about how I'm doing too, not just how you're doing. And it's in the spirit of, I want to help you get better. You have aspirations, you have ambitions. I want to help you realize them. And so it's, it's more of a, as Marshall Goldman calls it, feed forward, not feedback. Mm. For somebody who has not manifested their ambitions, if somebody who's sort of like marking time and likes to punch a clock and, you know, I, I want to understand a little bit more about what gets them up in the morning because everybody has some sense of wanting meaning in the world. Nobody wants to feel futile. Nobody wants to wake up in the morning and feel like I'm just consuming oxygen in the room. But many people do and don't even realize it, right? So how many how many men, especially white men, are we seeing wake up in their mid-50s and the suicide rates are off the charts because suddenly they're going to be toward the end of their career realizing what was it all for? And so if you've not helped somebody activate their own sense of meaning in the world, their own sense of purpose in the world, then that is part of your job to find out what gets people excited. What about the work they're doing makes them feel like their significance is met, their sense of, of unique contribution in the world is satisfied. When they go home at night, they feel proud. Because if you haven't tapped into that, then it's your job as a leader to know that. One of the things I do with a lot of my clients is we begin, you know, any transformational effort by saying, how does this company, if this company works for you, how is this company a platform on which you live out your purpose in the world? And we share it, we talk about it so that we all have a sense for how we support each other, for how we help each other achieve that sense of meaning. And we flip the script on, I don't just come here to mark time or produce whatever my remit is. I come here to meet this meaning in the world and this remit helps me do that. It changes the conversation and it changes how people show up at work. I have a client, we just went through a vision and values exercise for everyone on the leadership team. And then the two key owners went through the same thing for the company. And it's fascinating to watch how that alignment and the open conversation creates a very different level of engagement. And for so many people, they weren't even open to doing their own vision and values. And it was a little precious, sensitive that I'm going to talk about that stuff. That's personal, not any of your business. What wonderful anthropological data that is, right? So the fact that they didn't feel safe doing it is data, right? Yeah. And so then the question becomes, what, what do we do now? You can certainly, you can nudge a little bit. Hopefully some people will take risks and make it safer for others. But I think the real question for companies like that is to ask leaders, why do they feel that way? The owners saying what theirs was completely changed the conversation. Absolutely. Yep. Somebody else go first. Mm -hmm. Somebody show me why we're doing this. When a leader goes first, you set the stage for others to want to follow. And the entire organization is shifting because the two top owners not only talked about it, but one talked about, I care about what we do for our clients. The other one talked about, I care not so much about that, but I care about the families represented in this room yeah. and by our teams. And the two owners have different timelines. So it seems now safe to say, okay, I don't necessarily care about the end user of our product, but I do care about the person sitting next to me. Yeah. And that's also okay. And I can bring myself here and be open about my struggles and this team will support me. That yep. conversation really has been interesting to watch. Doesn't that change the game? Doesn't that change how I show up at work? And doesn't it change how performance happens, right? People in that environment will give very differently to that performance for the sake of their person next to them in the cubicle or for the sake of that client, they will give more. And so it'll be interesting to watch because this was relatively recent. And I have two clients going through a very similar process. How over the next couple of years, and my hope is it does exponentially increase their throughput, their service to their clients and their profitability. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm loving the conversation. I have not had an in-depth discussion about trust in this way, especially that is so data informed. So thank you for all of your research. Well, thank you, Maureen. I appreciate your help in helping me get the word out there. I need all the help I can get. <laughs> well, we will certainly share it. We'll put it in our blog and I will share it personally with my clients because I think it is so foundational to the performance of teams, organizations, brands meeting their brand commitments. All of this together really creates the cohesive package that keeps us from being in the news and to your point, makes us heroes. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So Ron, how would people find more about you, your books, your writing? So come visit us, our company website, Navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T.com. We have a treasure trove of white papers and articles and blogs and video series, online courses for all leaders and teams to help get better, keep getting fresh insights from us on a regular basis. If you want to learn more about the book, there's a website for it called tobehonest.net. And there we also have a bunch of articles that I've written on the research in HBR and Forbes. There's a whole webinar series. And we also did a TV series called Moments of Truth. So all 15 episodes are either on Roku, you can find them there, or on the website, to be honest. So I videoed all the interviews with the heroes. Wow. And I got the permission to use their videos. I also had two co-hosts join me for this TV show. Khalil Smith from the Neural Leadership Institute hosts one of those segments. And so you'll see in 30-minute episodes, you'll see a treasure trove of conversations and interviews with amazing people. And so you can binge watch all 15 episodes in a weekend and really get a sense for the behind the scenes look, the content that didn't make it in the book, about the stories of who these heroes are and how they think. And if you want to know how honest your team is, we have an assessment tool free, How Honest Is My Team? And you can download that at the website as well. Beautiful. Thank you for making that available at no cost to people because I, I realize that not everyone can afford you or me and everyone needs what you're offering. So we have made all the content available for free because I believe we can do better. I mean, I believe we can have a more honest and just world. It's just going to take a little work. Thank you. Thank you so much for your work. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Please do check out Ron's book, the website, and continue to put these practices in play so that you personally and your organizations can be more honest. At this point in history, we need every one of you to elevate who you are, no matter how good you are, to continue to elevate, as I will be doing with Ron's work and applying it in my own life. Please continue to listen, share this episode, and be the best person that each of you can be so that we as a society will be the collective that we can be. Well, Sabrina, thanks so much for having me. Thank you.